Bells of San Juan by Jackson Gregory Chapter 10 A Bribe and a Threat Virginia Page found time passing swiftly in San Juan. Within two weeks she came almost to forget how she had heard a rattle of pistol shots, how the slow sobbing of a bell in the mission garden had bemoaned a life gone and a fresh crime upon a man's soul. At the end of a month, it seemed to her, that she had dreamed that ride through the night with Roderick Norton, climbing the cliffs, ministering to a stricken man in the forsaken abode of ancient cliff-dwellers. She was like one marooned upon a tiny island in an immense sea, who has experienced the crisis of shipwreck, and now finds existence suddenly resolved into a quiet struggle for the maintenance of life. That, and a placid expectation, as another might have waited through the long, quiet hours for the sign of a white sail or a black plume of smoke. So did she wait for the end of a tale whose beginning had included her. That the long days did not drag was due not so much to that which happened about her as to that which occurred within her. She carried responsibility upon each shoulder. Her life was in the shaping, and she and none other must make it what it would be. Her brother's character was at that unstable stage, when it was ready to run into the mold. She had brought him here, from the city to the rim of the desert. The step had been her doing, nobody's but hers, and she had come here far less for the sake of Elmer Page's cough than for the sake of his manhood. She wanted him to grow to be a man, one could be proud of. There were times when his eyes evaded her, and she feared the outcome. He is just a boy, she told herself, seeking courage. It seemed such a brief time ago that she had blown his nose for him and washed his face. She made excuses for him, but did not close her eyes to the truth. The good old saw that boys will be boys failed to make of Elmer all that she would have him. Further to this consideration was another matter which filled the hours for her. The few dollars with which she had established herself in San Juan marched in steady procession out of her purse, and fewer other dollars came in to take their places. The Indian Ramirez, whose stomach troubles she had mitigated, came full of gratitude and Casablanca whiskey, and paid La Senora Doctor as handsomely as he could. He gave her his unlimited and eternal thanks and a very beautiful hair rope. Neither helped her very greatly to pay for room and board. Another Indian offered her a pair of chickens. A third paid her seventy-five cents on account and promised the rest soon. When she came to know his type better, she realized that he had done exceptionally well by her. She went often to the Ingalls, growing to love all three of them, each in a different way. Florrie she found vain, spoiled, selfish, but all in so frank a fashion that in return for an admittedly half-jealous admiration she gave a genuine affection and she was glad to see how Elmer made friends with them, always appearing at his best in their home. He and Florrie were already as intimate as though they had grown up with a backyard fence separating their two homes. They criticized each other with terrible outspokenness, they made fun of each other, they very frequently hated and despised each other, and, utterly unknown to either Florrie Engel or Elmer Page, were the best of friends. Of Roderick Norton, San Juan saw little through these weeks. He came now and then, twice ate with Virginia and Elmer at Straw's, 
talked seriously with John Engle, teased Florrie, and went away upon the business which called him elsewhere. Upon one of these visits he told Virginia that Brocky Lane was on the mend, and would be as good as new in a month. No other reference was made to her ride with him. But through his visits to San Juan, brief and few though they were, Roderick Norton was enabled to ensure himself with his own eyes that Kid Rickard was still to be found here if required, that Antone, as usual, was behind the Casablanca bar, that Jim Galloway was biding his time with no outward show of growing restless or impatient. Tom Cutter, Norton's San Juan deputy, was a man to keep both eyes open, and yet there were times when the sheriff was not content with another man's vision. Nor did the other towns of the county, scattered widely across the desert, beyond the mountains and throughout the little valleys, see much more of him. If a man wished word with Rod Norton these days, his best hope of finding him lay in going out to El Rancho de la Flores. It was Norton's ranch, having been Billy Norton's before him, one of the choice spots of the county bordering Las Cruces Rancho, where Brocky Lane was manager and foreman. Beyond the San Juan Mountains it lay across the head of one of the most fertile of the neighboring valleys, the Big Water Creek, giving it its greatness, its value, and the basis for its name. Here, for days at a time, the sheriff could in part lay aside the cares of his office, take the reins out of his hired foreman's hands, ride among his cattle and horses, and dream such dreams as came to him. One of these days I'll get you, Jim Galloway. He had grown into the habit of musing. Then they can look for another sheriff, and I can do what I want to do. And his desire had grown very clearly defined to him. It was the old longing of a man who comes into a wilderness such as this, the longing to make two blades of grass grow where one grew before his coming. With his water rights a man might work modern magic. Far back in the hills he had found the natural site for his storage dams. Slightly lower in a nest of hills there would be some day a pygmy lake, whose seductive beauty to him who dwells on desert lands calls like the soft beauty of a woman. Upon a knoll where now was nothing, there would come to be a comfortable, roomy, hospitable ranch house, to displace forever the shacks which housed the men now further down the slopes. And everywhere, because there was water aplenty, would there be roses and grapevines and orange trees. All this, when he should get Jim Galloway. From almost any knoll upon the Rancho de la Flores, he could see the crests of Mount Temple lifted in clear-cut lines against the sky. If he rode with Gaucho, his foreman, among the yearlings, he saw Mount Temple. If he rode the fifty miles to San Juan, he saw the same peaks from the other side. And a hundred times he looked up at them with eyes which were at once impatient and stern, he began to grow angry with Galloway for so long postponing the final issue. For though he did not go near the cliff caves, he knew that the rifles lay there awaiting Jim Galloway's readiness. A man named Bucky Walsh was prospecting for gold upon the slopes of Mount Temple, a silent, leather-faced little fellow, quick-eyed and resourceful. And above the discovery of color, it was the supreme business of Bucky Walsh to know what happened upon the cliffs above him. If there were anything to report, no man knew better than he how to get out of a horse all there was of speed in him. In the end, Norton called upon the reserves of his patience, saying to himself that if Jim Galloway could bide his time in calmness, 
he could do the same. The easier since he was unshaken in his confidence that the time was coming when he and Galloway would stand face to face while guns talked. Never once did he let himself hope for another ending. Giving what time he had free to ranch matters at Las Flores, the sheriff found other things to occupy him. There was a gambler's fight one night at the camp at Los Palmos Mines, a man badly hurt, an ill-starred bystander dead, the careless gunman, a fugitive, headed for the border. Norton went out after him, shifted saddle from jaded beast to fresh again and again, rode two hundred miles with only the short stops for hastily taken food and water, and got his man willy-nilly a mile below the border. What was more, he made it his personal business that the man was convicted and sentenced to a long term. About San Juan, there was no crime less tolerable than that of shooting wild. But all this brought him no closer to Jim Galloway. Galloway, meeting him shortly afterward in San Juan, laughed and thanked him for the job. It appeared that the man whom Norton had brought back to stand trial was not only no friend of the proprietor of the Casablanca, but an outspoken enemy. "'You'll be asking favors of me next, Norton,' grinned the big, thick-bodied man. "'I'd pay you real money for getting a few like him out of my way. "'Get me, don't you?' And he passed on, his eyes turned tauntingly. "'Yes, Norton got him. "'No man in the Southwest harbored more bitter ill-will for the lawless than Jim Galloway, "'unless the lawless stood with him. "'Aforetime many a hardy, temptuous spirit had defiled the crime dictator. "'Here of late?' There were few who hoped to slit throats or cut purses and not pay allegiance to the saloon-keeper of San Juan. Upon the heels of this affair, however, came another which was destined to bring Roderick Norton to a crisis in his life. Word reached him at Los Forest that a lone prospector in the Red Hills had been robbed of a baking-powder tin of dust, and that the prospector, recovering from the blows which had been rained on his head, had identified one of his two assailants. That one was Vidal Nuno's circumstances hinted that the other might be Kid Rickard. Norton promptly instructed Tom Cutter to find out what he could of Rickard's movements upon the day of the robbery, and himself set out to bring in Vidal Nuñez. Taking a grim joy in his task when he remembered how Nuñez had been the man who, with a glance, had cautioned Antone to hold his tongue after the shooting of Bisbee at the Casablanca. Here's a man Jim Galloway won't thank me for rounding up, he told himself, and we are going to see if his arm is long enough to keep Nunez out of the penitentiary. He went to San Juan, learned that nothing had been seen of the Mexican there, set the machinery of the manhunt in full swing, doubled back through the settlement to the eastward, and for two weeks got nothing but disappointment for his efforts. Nunez had disappeared, and none who cared to tell knew where. But Norton kept on doggedly, confident that the man had not had the opportunity to get out of the country. He was equally confident that sooner or later he would get him. Then came the second meeting with Jim Galloway. The two men rode into each other's view on the lonely trail halfway between San Juan and Tecolote, which is to say where the little barren hills break the monotony of the desert lands some eight or ten miles to the eastward of San Juan. It was late afternoon, and Galloway riding back toward town, 
had the sun in his eyes, though that he could not have known as soon as did Norton whom he was encountering. But Galloway was not the man to ride anywhere, that he was not ready for whatever man he might meet. Norton's eyes, as the two drew nearer, on the blistering trail, marked the way Galloway's right hand rested loosely on the cantle of his saddle, very near Galloway's right hip. Norton, merely eyeing him sharply, was for passing on without a word or a nod. The other, however, jerked in his horse, clearly of a mind for parley. "'Well?' demanded Norton. "'I was just thinking,' said Galloway dryly. "'What an exceptionally fitting spot we've picked. If I got you or you got me right now, nobody in the world need ever know who did the trick. We couldn't have found a much likelier place if we'd sailed away to an island in the South Seas.' "'I was thinking something of the same kind,' returned Norton coolly. Have you any curiosity in the matter? If you think you can get your gun first, why, then go to it. Galloway eased himself in the saddle. If I thought I could beat you to it, he answered tonelessly, I'd do it. As you know, if I even thought that I'd have an even break with you, he added, his eyes narrowing thoughtfully as they took stock of the sheriff's right hand swinging free at his side and never far from the butt of the revolver fitting loosely in his holster. I'd take the chance. Nah, you're a shade too lively in the draw for me, and I happen to know it. For a little they sat staring into each other's eyes, the distance of ten steps between them, their right hands idle while their left hands upon twitching reins curbed the impatience of the two mettled horses. As was usual, their regard was one of equal malevolence of brimming cold hatred. But slowly a new look came into Norton's eyes, a probing, penetrating look of calculation. Galloway was again opening his lips when the sheriff spoke, saying with contemptuous lightness, Jim Galloway, you and I have bucked each other for a long time. I guess it's in the cards that one of us will get the other some day. Why not right now, and in the whole damn thing? When I'm up against a man as I'm against you, I like to make it my business to know just how much sand has filtered into his makeup. You'd kill me if you had the chance and weren't afraid to do it, wouldn't you? If I had the chance, returned Galloway as coolly, though a spot of color showed under the thick tan of his cheek, and I'll get it some day. If you've got the sand, said Norton, you don't have to wait. What do you mean? snapped Galloway sharply. Norton's answer lay in a gesture, always keeping such a rein on his horse that he faced Galloway and kept him at his right. He lifted the hand which had been hanging close to his gun, slowly, inch by inch. His eyes hard and watchful upon Galloway's eyes, he raised his hand. Understanding leaped into Galloway's prominent eyes. It seemed that he had stopped breathing. Surely the hairy fingers upon the cantle of his saddle had separated a little, his hand growing to resemble a tarantula preparing for its brief spring. Steadily, slowly, the sheriff's hand rose in the air, brought upward and outward in an arc, as his arm was held stiff, as high as his shoulder now, now at last lifted high above his head, and all of the time his eyes rested bright and hard and watchful upon Jim Galloway's. 
filled at once with challenge and recklessness and certainty of himself. Galloway's right hand had stirred the slight fraction of an inch. His fingers were rigid and still stood apart. As he sat twisted about in his saddle, his hand had about seven inches to travel to find the gun in his hip pocket. Since when they first met, he had thrown his big body to one side, his left boot loose in the stirrup, while his weight rested upon his right leg. His gun pocket was clear of the saddle, to be reached in a flash. "'You'll never get another chance like this, Galloway,' said Norton crisply. "'I'd say it a guess, that my hand has about eight times as far to travel as yours. You wanted an even break. You've got more than that, but you'll never get more than one shot. Now it's up to you.' "'Before we start anything,' began Galloway, but Norton cut him short. "'I'm not fool enough to hold my hand up like this until the blood runs out of my fingers. You've got your chance, take it or leave it. But don't ask for a half an hour's option on it.' Swift changing lights were in Galloway's eyes, but his thoughts were not to be read. That he was tempted by his opportunity was clear. That he understood the full sense underlying the words, "'You'll never get more than one shot.' was equally obvious. That shot, if it were not to be his last act in the world, must be the accurate result of one lightning gesture. His hand must find his gun, close about the grip, draw, and fire, with the one absolutely certain movement. For the look in Rod Norton's eyes was for any man to read. Jim Galloway was not a coward, and Rod Norton knew it. He was essentially a gambler, whose business in life was to take chances. But he was of that type of gambler who plays not for the love of the game, but to win, who sets a cool brain to study each hand before he lays his bet, who gauges the strength of that hand not alone upon its intrinsic value, but upon a shrewd guess at the value of the cards out against it. At that moment he wanted more than he wanted anything else in the wide scope of his unleashed desires to kill Rod Norton. He balanced that fact with the other fact that less than anything in the world did he want to be killed himself. The issue was clear-cut. While a watch might have ticked ten times, neither man moved. During that brief time Galloway's jaw muscles corded, his face went a little white, with the strain put upon him. The restive horses, tossing their heads, making merry music with jingling bridle chains, might have galloped a moment ago from an old book of fairy tales, each carrying a man bewitched, turned to stone. If you've got the sand, Norton taunted him, his blood running hot with the fierce wish to have done with this sidestepping and procrastination. If you've got the sand, Jim Galloway. It's better than an even break that I could get you, said Galloway at last. And at that, it's an even break, or nearly so, that as you slipped out of the saddle, you'd get me too. You take the pot this time, Norton. I'm not betting. Shifting his hand, he laid it loosely upon the horn of his saddle. As he did so, his chest inflated deeply to a long breath. Norton's uplifted hand came down swiftly, his thumb catching in his belt. There was a contemptuous glitter in his eyes. After this, he said bluntly, You'll always know, and I'll always know, that you are afraid. I make it a part of my business not to underestimate a man I go out to get. I think I have overestimated you. 
For a moment Galloway seemed not to have heard as he stared away through the gray distances. When he brought his eyes back to Norton's, they were speculative. Men like you and me ought to understand each other and not make any mistakes, he said, speaking slowly. I have just begun to imagine lately that I have been doping you up wrong all the time. Now I've got two propositions to make to you. You can take either or neither. It will probably be neither. What are they? I've got a day's ride ahead of me. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. That depends on what you say to my proposition. You're looking for Vidal Nunez. They tell me. And I'm going to get him as much as anything for the sake of swatting the devil around the stump. Meaning me, Galloway shrugged. Well, here's my song and dance. This country isn't quite big enough. You drop your little job and clear out and leave me alone and I'll pay you $10,000 now and another 10000 six months from now. Offer number one, said Norton, manifesting neither surprise nor interest even. $20,000 to pull my freight. Well, Jim Galloway, you must have something on the line that pulls like a big fish. Now, let's have the other barrel. I have suggested that you clean out. The other suggestion is that if you won't get out of my way, you get busy on your job. Vidal Nunez will be at the Casa Blanca tonight. I've sent word for him to come in and that I'd look out for him. Come get him. Which will you take, Rod Norton? Twenty thousand iron men? Or your chances at the Casa Blanca? It was Norton's turn to grow thoughtful. Galloway was rolling a cigarette. The sheriff reached for his own tobacco and papers. Only when he had set a match to the brown cylinder and drawn the first of the smoke did he answer. You've said it all now, haven't you? He demanded. Yep, said Galloway. It's up to you this time. What's the word? Norton laughed. When I decide what I am going to do, I always do it, he said lightly. And as a rule, I don't do a lot of talking about it beforehand. I'll leave you to guess the answer, Galloway. Galloway shrugged and swung his horse back into the trail. So long, he said colorlessly. So long, Norton returned. End of chapter 10